So we got three, two, one. Welcome to another Stoned Ape podcast. We are back again. We got three motherfuckers, but this time we're missing a motherfucker. Your guys' date must have went really well. Three different. What did you do yeah, to him? Yeah, like he I can't even show up at the podcast the next week. Like, yep, he's is gotta, he okay? He's gotta, yeah, he's, he's gonna be fine. Low, little low light therapy, <laughs> yeah. some shit going Man, on. Like, do, damn, he's gotta do some stuff. So uh, today we've got this. I got the Sarge here. Got a long time army buddy. We're just gonna call him Ranger for purposes of this. Uh, this is Ranger. Go ahead, tell it's us good, a little bit about yourself. Good to be here. Um, yeah, just happy to be here visiting uh, some buddies from across the country. And where are you originally from? Um, Utah. Is that where you're living now? Yeah. Where at in Utah? Um, the southwest corner, just right next to Nevada and Arizona. Right, yeah, I know, right? right. On the yeah. Tri -corners. Okay. Like yeah. Nice. Vegas. So, yep. Good. You are some dead. So yeah. you're the opposite side that I want to be. Yes. I want to be on the southeast side, right on the corner of Colorado with New Mexico. Right. And yeah. So he actually has a hunting property we were talking about, going out there to hunt some bigger elk and stuff. And I told him you would probably be interested. Oh, no, right. Road I, trip. I picked up an acre out there by Bryce Canyon. Hell yeah, we so. could take Brienne out there and just. Hit it. Yeah. Yeah, great hunting. We can just there. camp in the fucking car, call it a day. Well, I've got trailers, everything. So Dude. We, we do it in style. I'm too old to be sleeping on the ground. You did all that I got beds shit. and toilets. You did all that hard shit. That's, that's, that's how I got the runner for, man. We put up, what we do in the runner is we got a uh, Japanese roll up mattress, right? And so they make them in different thicknesses. So we went ahead and got a little bit thicker one. It's about eight inches thick. And we just roll that out in the back of the forerunner. And the way the forerunners are set up, for me, I'm 5'8", and so it works. I right. think you could probably be like 5'10", but I can sleep down there fully extended, so it's like a regular bed. So I'm not smushed, I'm not in a weird position, I'm sleeping like a mattress. And truthfully, honestly, I think the, the sleep that I get in the car is probably Good better sleep. than I do in the house, because yeah. the, it's so comfortable. I, I do as well, just in the open, cold air, I, I tend to sleep better than I do mm. inside. Yeah, what we do is we bought, uh, you know that uh, foil insulation they put around HVAC? Oh, yeah. Okay. So we cut that out for the windows. So we stick that in the windows at night. Oh, nice. And then what that does is that thermal insulates it. So whatever temperature you have, it'll regulate that. Okay. So we'll get the car real nice and hot. We'll put the windows in. We'll get the bed set up. And then we'll sit next to the campfire and do whatever. And then when we're ready to go to bed, we have a warm vehicle. Yeah. We get into the vehicle and then, you know... When we were out, the coldest it would get at night, well, we, we one night it snowed. We were up at the Grand Canyon, and uh, it was probably 14 degrees, snowing outside, top of a mountain, sitting in the Grand Canyon, and woke up and had no idea it was 14 degrees, right. you know. We opened that door, and I was like, ah, oh, fuck this. Well, we're out. <laughs> going back to bed now. That's knowing, the, yeah. knowing, knowing, knowing you, you had body heat going, too. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, it was good. Well, it was good. Is, we are all right. right. We made it. We're okay. We made it. We we're, figured it out. We're surviving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys probably get a rude awakening because in the high desert, we're used to fluctuating 30 degrees from night to day on a regular basis. Well, the good news is, so uh, my girlfriend's from Canada. Okay. So she grew up in Vancouver. And then she moved from Vancouver to Colorado Springs. And so she's lived in the Colorado Springs most of her life. Now, she's lived all over the country. But those are the primary two places where she spent the most time. And uh, so she was she's really familiar with the area. So when we took the trip, she was kind of the tour guide. You know, she's been to Moab and she's been to all these places. And then for me, I'd have so much time in the desert in the Army. You know, I spent like two and a half years of my military time like in the desert between NTC, Iraq, and Kuwait. Like, that's all I did is live in the fucking desert. Where so, were you stationed at? Uh, I was Fort Riley. Okay. Yeah, I was weird. So 
I joined the army and they gave me guaranteed station of choice and I was with my high school sweetheart you know and so they gave me Germany Hawaii and Fort Riley and so what does 18 year old me do I don't want to. I don't want to leave my girlfriend, man. I can't. Terrible oh my god! So I go ahead and take Fort Riley, and I think, well, this is great. It's a guaranteed station of choice, so I get it for a year or whatever it was. And um, I thought I'm close enough to her. We're going to get married, and things are going to be great. And then what I didn't realize though is that Fort Riley was a high deployment unit, and so we were rapid deployment, and so we were spending six months of the year in the field whether we were at NTC or we were out in the field. So we'd spend two weeks a month and rotate in and out or whatever. And, and I'd never home. Yeah, you know, it's never right. home. It was, and then from there, I went to Kuwait. Went to Kuwait in 2000, turned around after that, and then turned around and went back to Iraq. And it's just like, by the time you add up all the fucking time gone, between that and the stateside time. You're home a few months yeah. out of the year. Well, and, then, and then we were on, like, two, two of those years, we were assigned rapid deployment. And I know you guys know what that's like when you live with the fucking duffel bags in the corner. Yeah. You know, Christmas time, and you're sitting at home because you got to be within fucking three two, hours two of the hour SNA. Yeah. yeah, two hour Both recall, hours right? In, in yeah. our sequence, yeah, 24 hours. We, we were... Uh, with our unit is like you had to be able to deploy anywhere in the world within 24 well, you know hours. So we think, li- yeah, we did live at those double bags. I think for, every, for everybody out there listening, since we do have three, three grunts around sitting talking around a table, and they kind of know our background already. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, tell why don't why don't you uh, just kind of tell everybody your military background. Yeah, like, um, what'd you do? When'd you go in? What years? Well, I, I joined the military in December of 2000 with the delayed entry program. I actually went in to be a civil, or uh, a combat engineer, because I was going to college uh, to get my civil engineering degree, and I didn't know shit about the military, so I went to my recruiters and said, I want to be an engineer. Great place for information, by the way. Right. That's, that's where you go to learn <laughs> about the military, from the recruiter. Great. Right. Best place to learn. Right. But being a civilian, you don't you don't you don't know any better. You know, I come from a long line of history of, you know, proud military families. Almost all of them did the Navy. I got four uncles that were in World War Two and survived and went through Pearl Harbor and one of them, you know, got his Purple Heart from the Pacific and Yeah, I d I didn't know shit. So I go up there and says I want to jump out of airplanes and blow some shit up. So I want to be a combat engineer, and they're like, "Well, we got this contract for you. We'll give you a ten thousand dollar bonus. It's called Airborne Rangers. They jump out of airplanes and blow shit up." I was like, "All right, cool. Sounds great to me." Had no idea what I was getting myself into. Right. <laughs> so lo and behold, yeah, my first airplane I've ever been on was to Georgia, you know, for basic training, and so, yeah, I didn't know what the hell was going on, so I just didn't quit. Like as much shit as they put us through and everything, I just didn't quit. You know, so I end up yeah getting stationed, going through ripping all that stuff, and get stationed at Second Ranger Battalion. And this is the shit part. I had my what four day leave after rip to get to my unit. So I flew to Vegas, got married September 9th, two thousand and one. <laughs> In Ranger I, Regiment, I show up to Ranger Regiment, and the second day I'm there. Sewing my kid on, I'm in the uh, day room watching the TV and watching these airplanes crash into the towers. So at that moment, we got instantly locked down and I was no longer allowed to go home. That was it. So we palletized, got notified, they pulled the, the... Right now, most of the 2nd Ranger Battalion was all deployed to Germany, so they spun them up to, to get him back home 
and the 2nd Ranger Battalion was supposed to be the first unit to deploy, but because they were in, you know, Germany at that point, that's why they sent 3rd Battalion first to hit boots on the ground. So I ended up deploying to Afghanistan, I think, early part of 2002, Bagram, and, and when we landed at Bagram, it was, it, it, there wasn't, it wasn't a base. It was just a Heskos and a snap together uh, airport, so we, we flew into Saudi or wherever, and then, you know, took uh, the military craft into there, and then we loaded up on Chinooks and, and dropped into some of these areas, but established, you know, Bagram Air Base, and did a little bit of outskirts, and I was a part of the unit that uh, took over the Jalalabad Air Base. I, uh, and that's a whole story all on its own, where they, we were fast roping into these areas to uncleared minefields, so then we had to find our way out of these minefields using grappling hooks and basically knives. Um, yeah, that was a Yeah, it was... That's how I discovered what a combat engineer was. <laughs> so that that's a funny thing, right? So I go to MEPS, and so here's my story a little bit, and it's similar to yours, right? I, I woke up out of the blue one day and was like, I should probably consider going to the military, right? I had a friend that had just done it. He joined the National Guard, and um, I was in a pretty precarious academic situation where <laughs> um, I wasn't a very good student. Yeah. And so oh, I was talking to the counselors, and I was having a meeting with the counselors and the principals, and they were like, hey, you know, you, guys, you can do, like, two options. You can graduate next year or you can go ahead and enroll in the delayed entry program. And then as long as you do that, we'll give you your diploma and then you can go off, you know? And I was like, okay, cool, I should go talk to a recruiter. Because <laughs> doing another year of school didn't seem like what I wanted to do, you know? So I go down and I talk to the recruiter and uh, they send me to MEPS, same story, right? I get to the end of MEPS, I scored super high on my ASVAB and all this stuff. And so they gave me these great contracts. One of them was right. an Apache mechanic and it was a six year enlistment though. And um, then there was a, there was a couple other options, and then one of them was like you said, it came with the, the sign-on bonus or right. the I got the fifty thousand for college, the Army College Fund, and he goes, you'd be a combat engineer. Well, the girl I was dating at that time, her her grandpa was in the, uh, whatever the local ho the operating union is here, the five five thirty oh, uh, something. Um, they're an engineering unit. Yeah, engineering unit, but they're. Right, no, right. not the engineer unit, the local, the actual, the, um, the operators union here oh, in St. Yeah, Louis. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was a member of the operators union. I forgot what they're called. I don't know their numbers. But uh, I thought, okay, this is great. I can go in as a combat engineer. He told me these guys build, like, bridges and roads and, and, and you know, whatever. And, yeah. and then I can come out and I can drive heavy equipment. My career's done. Right. Because stupid me, I didn't realize, like, being an Apache mechanic would have been a better career. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, maybe I should have learned to work on aviation. Hey, avionics. Yeah, avionics would have been a bright choice. So I didn't score high enough on my ass. Should have talked to Danny. <laughs> and, and so... Yeah, and so I get there, and I go. It's it's OSET again. So one unit station training. So we're in the basic training portion. We just finished, and we came out. We started, and I'm on the other end of the barracks. So you remember the old? I'm at Fort Leonard Wood. So we had okay. these long barracks, yeah. and so we had the Spaceships. the corridor on one wall and the corridor on the other, right? And so I'm in the, for whatever reason, for the first six or seven weeks of basic, I've never been in the other corridor. Like, I've only been on the right side of this building. Like, I've entered and exited only from this space. So, right. 
one day I'm on like some cleaning detail and it had me on the other side of the building. And as I was going up the stairway on the second floor is this giant mural on the wall. <laughs> and it's got all these guys with grappling hooks and, you know, the little fork pokers right, and stuff, right? Yeah. And I'm looking at this and I was like, what the fuck is this? And it's like, oh, yeah, they're, the plastic they're, they're clearing a minefield. And I was like, what dumbass gets on their ass and crawls around and does this, you know? Me. And I shit you not. It was like... <laughs> Two minutes later, the drill sergeant's like, all right, boys and girls, today we're going to learn how to arm and disarm mines. And I was like, say what? Who the fuck? That was the day I learned that this was part of the job. Okay? <laughs> no one had told me. I thought we were no supposed one. to be building bridges. No one. I thought I was driving a bulldozer. Yeah. Yeah, no one told me. When I was I like, fuck that me. Civil engineering degree? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's why when I got to Ranger Battalion, it's like, what the fuck did I just get myself in? There is nothing engineer about being a combat engineer. Not, not, not a fucking yeah, thing. Not I learned not shit. I got licensed on equipment that I drove for like the time that I was in class to get licensed on it. It never touched it ever right. again. The rest of my military oh, yeah. career, I was basically a grunt who yeah. got covered in oil on a regular basis. That was it. Oh, dude. Uh, well, yeah, you, uh, so I'm trying to do the timeline in my head because I kind of know this, but I know you went, you went to Afghanistan and then I know you came back and you hadn't right. been back very long before. Tell everybody kind of, because everybody's heard me talk plenty I think I've talked about you once or twice on here, probably, just because you and I did so much shit together, but... Is he the guy you were talking shit on all the time? Yeah, no, probably. Definitely, yeah. definitely, not, definitely not him. Him and I were kind of... Oh, he wasn't the slacker. No. No. Oh, okay. No. no. You no. can say a lot about me, but a slacker wasn't one of them. Tell no, him, uh, you look scrappy as fuck, man. I ain't <laughs> gonna like, lie. Tell him kind of how you... You can see it. How you... Give everybody just an idea about how you made that transition, how you leaving regiment happen, and then kind of how... How we met, your take on it, because I know the story in my head, but I'm my perspective. Well, you know what I, mean? I mean, there was a lot involved. Ranger regiment. Yeah, anyway. there was a lot involved in that. Bad wives. <laughs> Did you, well, I mean. Do you guys still have the shorts? That's what I really want. I do. Oh, yeah. I, I do. You Ranger wear them? Panties. You want to see them? You wear them? On occasion. I need to, I need I to get myself an authentic pair of Ranger panties. Can you guys hook me up? Mm-hmm. I need some Probably. in my life. But I want them to be the real deal, though. I'll see. All right, let me, you guys need to hook me up. I, Size medium, if anybody out there is listening. Well, we got to find somebody that like Ranger Joe's in uh, Georgia I, or somewhere. I got, to, I got, to I got those. people. But you can okay. order them. I got people. But they've changed since I was in, and I was going to say I, I do have a few pairs, but the elastics are completely shot. Uh, I mean, they're fair. twenty years old. That fair. It's like. Him and I used to wonder get, why they never made Samper. Pay. Him and I used to get yelled right. at. In really, the, never wonder that we should have had an OD green right. pair with a red tab on it. They people just would told get us upset. we were special because we did so much running. The regular army shorts would chafe your dick off. People got upset at us in like Missoula because we that was only walked. for guys that were hung. Though we'd sit outside yeah. our hooch in Missoula and nothing but Ranger pennies, and dudes would walk by like seriously. Right. Because him and I shared a room. Shit's anyway, yeah, tell man. tell everybody how you came over and maybe kind of how we met. Your take um, on. Well, I mean, it was pretty rough because I had a few kids at the time. They always claimed at the army it's all family friendly, but by <laughs> you know, yeah. And then when I, I got to battalion and this whole war thing kicked off, I was ne I was never home at all. It was um, we were locked down to the barracks. They sent us out to training. That we had to do the fixed wing, you know, rotary wing, bilats training, the NTC, everything else, and in between. And by that time, then we deployed, and then I came back from deployment. And because of the war, I didn't go to ranger school right after RIP, like I was supposed to. Yeah. They pushed us through that, put us to 
regiment, and then we went to ranger school after. Yeah. So by the time I went to ranger school, I already had a combat dad. So I got recycled, and holy shit, I oh, I was there for like six months, not going to lie, because when I got recycled, it was best ranger going on. So when I got kicked, I had like a month and a half holdover waiting for best ranger to get done that's the worst time to be there before they set me in again Fucking and i was there so long that my family had kind of fallen apart without me my wife was trying to deal with two kids i never i didn't even get to see my kid because i was deployed in afghanistan when he was born so i didn't get to meet my my son until he was three months old and then went to back you know as soon as i got home i got deployed again and deployed again so the wife was done so she didn't pay the bills. I got sent home from ranger school, and they could no longer keep me in the unit in the leadership position. I, they, I mean, I put in my time and everything else. To so you had already made E five by then. No, they they no, wouldn't were promote you with that. They wouldn't promote you without a. So you were a corporal then. No, I was no. I was E4P, just an E four. E four P. Yeah, okay. but they couldn't give me a team. They couldn't give me anything without a. I finished a, my career there. A tab. Yeah. <laughs> so I could either be a bitch boy for the next year or two waiting for another opportunity to go back to school and finish yeah. or, or I just transfer out. At that time period we had a guy called First Sergeant A which was the most tactical badass guy in he's Ranger le- Battalion. He's a legend in Ranger Regiment. Right. He came to us because he couldn't get a First Sergeant they slot gave, in Regiment because yeah. they said in Ranger he was Regiment too tactical. he was too tactically proficient and not administratively minded. So they put Rothke yeah. in and First Sergeant A decided to go down the road. I heard about this and asked him. He says, new. No, I kind of heard about your situation. Come fall. Come down here and put in the paper. So I submitted a 4187 transfer paper to First RNA's unit. I followed him down there. When I got there, that's where I met Samuelson. So we, all the kind of, well, they call this Ranger Rejects, but there was a whole group of uh, Rangers at that time that left because of the politics, the bullshit, the crap that was going on and they called it mini ranger battalion because we had so many people coming down to this new unit that was only specific specifically activated we, and flagged for deployment we were we were a ranger company for all intents and purposes the commander without was yeah commander. minus the budget and the in the name but as far as people i served with there was never any better well, i think too though you know all i'm thinking about the whole time that you're telling this entire first part of your military career is and what I think that the audience probably doesn't understand is how much the military was changing at that time. Oh, yeah. See, I went in in 99. So when I go in in 99, we haven't had a major conflict since the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right? why I signed up, because we had Bush's president. I says, there's no fucking yeah, way I'm right? going to war. I'm so, getting the GI Bill and yeah, my school. When I went into the military in 99, we were in the old BDUs. We still mm-hmm. had LBE gear left over from Vietnam. We had flak vests. Right. We didn't do real training. The, at really, truthfully, my unit, the, the only way that I could describe my unit to people was the military before September 11th was, soft. was a frat party. Yeah. We were, I was a professional alcoholic. Well, it was a nine That's to five. That's all I did. When you went into recruiting office during a peacetime army, it's a nine to five. Yeah. You work nine to yeah. five and, and you come out. Off. Yeah. Even though we did all the training and we were gone all the time, there was, I like I told people before, I was a terrible soldier. The first three years of my military career, I wasn't one of those guys that was high speed and showing up with the shine boots. I wasn't pressing my uniforms. I wasn't going to boards. I wasn't doing any of that. I was the guy that was in the back just trying to get out. <laughs> like, I just wanted to get through this so that I could get my ETS and be done, right? You're going to college, pay yeah. your fee, get your So, <laughs> I was in the process of ETSing. After, so, here I am, three, three and a half years into a terrible military career. 
and I'm in the process of ETSing, and then I get stop lost and pulled back to my unit. Oh, man. And they're like, you're going to deploy. And then it was at that moment that I realized, like, holy shit, like, I got to actually take this thing serious. Like, I got to be a soldier now, right? But what the military had to do, like you said, you mentioned all that training. People didn't realize we didn't have any of that. Yeah. We had none of that established. You guys got we screwed. had, yeah, we had the the U.S. Marshals came in and were teaching us CQB, and they were coming in and they were doing profiling classes, and they were teaching us how to do things. We had none of that training. We didn't even know how to put up a fucking gate guard. Like that wasn't part of what we were doing. Well, you being know? an engineer, why is that your job? Right. You know, till it is. Till yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. and so when September 11th happened, the military completely changed. Oh yeah. And I wasn't part of Afghanistan, so even then. That was really unaffected by that whole period of time. Yeah. Like it wasn't until 2003 when I seen when I had to go to Iraq that any of that perspective had changed. And but even then, it's like I told Sam. I said, "You look at my time when I come back from Iraq. I come back from Iraq in uh, September of 2003. Okay, so I did my seven and a half months, and then I rotate back. The military that I left, we had just started getting interceptor vests at that time, so we finally got ceramic plate armor. Uh, we were still using the LBEs with the ceramic plate armor because we didn't have right. any of the Mali system yet. When I went in at you 2000, know? they gave me a flak vest. Yeah, flak. I, I went to Iraq. I served the entire <laughs> like the entire war effort. The first three months, I had a flak vest <laughs> right. and LBEs. That's oh. what we used. We didn't have any of this high-speed shit. And that shit doesn't stop yeah. anything. So that's why I tell people, and that's why I told Sam I knew re- immediately. The first time I went to the, the range with Sam, I had two, like, big epiphanies. And one was, holy shit, the, there's people out there that know so much more than me, right? And then two was how much the military had changed. Oh, yeah. Like, the army that he left and the army that I left are not even the same world. Well, and again, right. and I've seen it. that at the end of my career where they were transitioning out of the tactical end and screwing over the tactical NCOs and everything else and forcing them out and going to more the yes-man Well, type and, of. and I will... I will caveat Like, don't this. think about this shit, just go do it. So when I came in, because I haven't talked about how that worked, I went in and got... I got out and came back in to go to war. I came in in 98. I got out in June of 2001. Okay. Shit's fucking me up. My unit, I was with the 10th Mountain Division. I did a uh, peacekeeping stability operation in Bosnia for eight months. It's a combat zone. We carried a combat load. But honestly, it was pretty chill other than they were trying to kill each other. We had some guy like there was some mind strike stuff and stuff, but nothing was kinetic where you were going after guys. And then I was out, and I remember I was working at a Ford dealership as a PDI tech. I test drove new vehicles, getting ready to go out and put like accessories. Like I actually was putting a brush guard on an F one fifty, and I was walking past the um, you know where you could buy the accessories and like the maintenance area kind of for customers. Right. And I saw the second plane hit the World Trade Center. And I went out and my phone, I had my own stall where I would put stuff in and do stuff, and my phone was blowing up, and it was all the guys from my old unit, and they're like, get ready, first sergeant said you're getting called back, because I was still in IRR status, and my unit was on CRF for the Army. My unit was the first conventional unit in Afghanistan, my company. For whatever reason, because I had moved so much, I never got the call. I waited and waited and waited, and then finally about a year year later, I 
my <laughs> wife at the time, I convinced her to let me come back in. I came back in, went to Fort Lewis, and hated it initially, because honestly the unit was garbage, and then First Sergeant Joe Alexander, who uh, Sam was talking about, um, he came over to the unit, and you followed him over about a week or two later, and then it was game on. But the, the way the Army worked and the training you talk about, in my career I was uniquely, it was fate, in in opportunities to work with units that conventional units don't get to. Like First Sergeant Alexander, just for context, he left Ranger Regiment, deployed with us, got hurt, healed and went back as the officer major and retired from regiment. They, he only left because they didn't have a slot for him. Matter of yeah. fact, when I came back, he tried pulling me and him back to go to the recce platoon in 2nd Battalion. He offered it to us. He said, go back. I'm going to put you guys in the, in the recce platoon. I didn't go because at the time I was training for, well, I had trained for, I trained for Delta Selection yeah. for a while. Yeah, you were pushing that real hard. I was getting after it, but the wife at the time wasn't going to have it. I wasn't even going to re-enlist. And then throughout time, the training I received, I just got uniquely placed to be trained to do things most conventional guys don't we'll get to do. It. And a lot of it was when we were together. Because um, I remember that. You came over and I think I moved squads. Yeah, because... You were my boss. I, I was after I got moved because I got into it with a squad leader... Yeah, the, the, uh, they didn't know what to do with me when I first got there because you had more like, experience. This than guy, everybody. we want to put you under. We have to put you under somebody, but we're going to be careful of who we do it to. And then they moved me. And then they put me underneath you. I was the senior team leader in the company. There, but it worked out well because he didn't puff up the big chest and be like, "Hey, I outrank you. You're going to do what the fuck I say." Everything else, he came in and was like, "Dude, I kind of see your background. Let's talk." And treated me as an equal. And I taught him some conventional stuff that right. you had never the, the, really yeah. done before because I had well, the experience with the 10th Mountain. Well, it's a different ball game. Is, is when you're talking special operations is who's the best, is, is you really can't say that because conventional has their job. Rangers have their job. Delta has their job. Navy SEALs have their job. And SF yeah, has their job. They all do their own right. thing. Right. And you, when you say, well, who's the best? Well, Rangers what you're doing. are what are the doing? best infantry, hands down. That's what we do. That's all we do. We are a sledgehammer pounding in nails. But it's mainly airfield seizures, raids. Right. Big shit. And we do security. Right. And they don't mention that, too, is when Navy SEALs have a raid, Delta has a raid. We are their security. We do all the cordon so they can go do the snatch at and grabs, at that in that and time, out, in the sneaky shit. All, the global war on terror changed all that because when we, because I got you, your team. They were pulling out. conventional units. How much did the development of Marsog change that? Wouldn't, mm. wouldn't that be more of a MARSOC mission than a Ranger mission? No. So it's what what force and what time you're there. So when we were there, in pretty short order, because he came over, he was already to be promotable, he worked under me briefly, and I was like, give this kid a job. He ended up becoming the Bravo team leader. I was the Alpha team leader. The squad leader we had was, and I'm not disparaging the guy, they put, they were balancing strengths and weaknesses. Matter of fact... Before we deployed, my former squad leader was trying to pull me. He had become a platoon sergeant in another platoon. He was trying to pull me, and the first sergeant wouldn't let me leave the platoon because he saw something. 
the we were E5s, and the first sergeant by name used to tell the orderly room to go grab us to tell us stuff, which pissed our first off. You're talking about an E7, and all of a sudden some E4s coming down Flip. and saying, hey, the senior advisor in this company <coughs> wants to talk to these two E5s because he called us his shooters. Right. And we were... <coughs> Like, we could walk up to the Delta compound and say, hey, we can we get some of this? Yeah. Hey, here's some nine bangers for you guys. Here's We were treated differently, and we got access. Like, he taught us oh, at a breaching man. range how to blow a safe. Yeah. Like, right. he, he went through a full master breacher the, course as a regular demo range. This guy made... Like, I went through master breacher, and everything that we did in this course covered everything. I mean, it was amazing. And he just, I don't know how he got it to work but he would end up getting the supplies he gave these guys better training honestly than we got in, in range this, battalion in this, some this guy made so if you have regular mount okay. training regular CQB first RNA knew all the Delta guys he made advanced mount for ranger regiment he wrote it then he taught us so when you in shooting this guy went to literally every sniper school the government offered and I don't mean the military well, my old CIA sniper, was the sniper, FBI counter teacher. sniper. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. first RNA taught him. This yeah. guy's the best shot I've seen in my whole life. Yeah. And if you met him, oh, little unassuming guy, maybe five, six. No, five, five, maybe. Five, five, short dude. He's yeah, killed more people than cancer. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Scary. I but would... the, the knowledge transfer, and like when he got hurt, the Delta guy is getting off the bird working with us. We're like, how's Joe? I mean, when you say they were friends with him, he knew the commander hurt, of the dude. task force. When you take a forty millimeter rocket through your hip, yeah, and you're lapping it off, he cuts cut. are hanging out, dude. If after this, this rocket punched through a ramp in a striker, which is probably what four inches of steel before it went through him, and he's laughing and joking, getting carried off on a stretcher. He's like, "I'll be back, guys." And guess who was there when we got back from deployment? He was in a so like, when we got shit. when we got yeah. back home showed us damn. a scar. He literally like, was in a wheelchair. Oh man! We get home. Last thing we saw, I remember him and I were in a vehicle. We were taking down an Al Qaeda stronghold with Delta. Vehicles coming back in middle of the night. They'd been out another rotation into this sh- terrible oh, city. Dude. It was horrid. We hear screaming over the radio initially. They come rolling back in, and they were like, "We got an eagle down." And we didn't hear him over the net at all. And we're like, no, 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 no. And then we go through the rest of that clearance, fighting with those guys, doing that stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> we get off the plane, and you know how it is when you get home. You're in the theater, the wives are waiting, they release you, wives come running out. Well, all that was starting to happen, and First RNA's wife has him in a wheelchair. She has, She's standing behind him. All the wives come running out to greet the rest of the battalion. And our commander, who was our first sergeant's platoon leader in Second Ranger Battalion, now he's our company commander. So we had a Ranger company command. Says, Bushmaster, stand fast. And we don't move. Wives are running up to husbands, and guys are waiting. And we all look away from our wives. Haven't seen them in a year. And he's like, "Hey, bring it in." And this guy who took a rocket through the back three months earlier stands up out of his chair and he's like, "I love you guys." He goes, "Honestly, I've done better stuff with you guys than I did in the regiment. You guys are all family to me, and I'm proud as hell that we all came home alive. I don't know how we pulled it off, but most of it's because of your mindset." And we all gave that guy a hug, and the wives are in tears. And then we turned around and said hi to our wives. Yeah, well, that was our hero. He was, well, at least I, I can only speak for that. He was my hero. 
you know. <clears throat> and it was hard. It was hard to see him go down. It's like it takes the wind out of your sails at the same time, but then it breeds new life into you. It's literally that, uh, you know, that, uh, old Greek, that old Greek quote he had outside his office. And uh, it's from Theodoclus or something like that. Something like, I'm going to mess it up. But it, the quote is, in war out of every 100 men, 80 shouldn't be there or 90 shouldn't be there. Ten are there and they're true warriors and they make the fight. But the one, the one will bring them home. He had that quote outside his office, and he didn't call himself that, but that was him. Oh, yeah. And his shooters in the company, because I can I can name guys, I could name guys right now, I'm not going to, who now in their career, like one of them just retired as the sergeant major of uh, 4th Ranger Training Brigade. I could hand name guys, summer and special forces units. We were the guys, they were guys in other platoons who they would grab, E5s, young guys, because he said these are the guys going in the door first, who he called his shooters. We were his 10. And when he... It would be the equivalent of watching Achilles get taken out. That's what it was like for us. And we had to finish the fight. You want to talk about a severe, serious emotional event? This demigod who's been going through crazy stuff. And then when he found out we're coming home, he's leaving the hospital in physical therapy and stands up out of a wheelchair and says, I love you guys. I'm glad you made it home. That's who we had as a mentor. Shaped my whole military career. Yeah. Our military career, honestly. Because after that, nothing nothing compared, nothing to, compared that. to that. Nothing compared to that, I did other cool shit, high-value target stuff, recon. and. Well, and he led from the front. He didn't hide behind anything like so many did. I mean, a, a lot of people I served with, I mean, especially in the officers, they may have had good intentions and everything else, but they caused you way more headache than anything. But yeah, he was, was actually, he yeah. didn't demand people did shit. He went out and did it, and you followed him or you didn't. Remember that, remember he, that, remember that run? He, he just he just went. Remember that run? The pro mask? Oh, yeah. yeah. So one day we're sitting there, and all the first, we get this call <laughs> late at night. Hey, tomorrow morning, bring your pro mask. Hydrate. Apparently, he'd been sitting there, and he said, Hey, tomorrow morning, I want to go on a company pro-mask run. And all the platoon sergeants thought he was joking, and they were like, Yeah, let's wear body armor, too. And he's like, Okay. And they said, Hey, let's wear a full kit. He's like, Okay. And then somebody else is like, Oh, and litters. He said, Okay. So the next morning, he sent out an email later that night. We ran eight miles carrying dudes on litters, and you saw who was weak and who wasn't. Because there were guys who couldn't run, who still had a lot of heart, who were carrying people. I don't remember how many people you and I carried that day. A lot. But literally with masks on. <laughs> and first Arnais out there, and this shit. is when I made my own. <clears throat> he walks out there not just with his kit on and his armor. Oh, he had weighted magazines in his kit that were built to replicate real armor. He real had weight. fake grenades, the real rate of weight of grenades. I ended up getting them made from Task C, and I started going on runs when I was training for Delta. Because he... He cared about us so much. He had the trainer from 2nd Battalion come down. They have a civilian personal trainer come down oh, and great. build me a program to get ready for Delta. Yeah. He was the On his own time. That's how wow. that guy was. Yeah. Yeah. He did. On the weekend, if it was his day off, he would come pick you up from the bar. Mm-hmm. He would make you pay for it, but he would do it. He built a company bar in our day room. He, he was the only... We'd come in from the field. He had a Budweiser light in the in the training room. As soon as everybody was in and weapons were accounted for, I remember the first time he goes, I was walking past his office. He's like, hey, Sam, light, beer light's on. I'm like, what's up, first art? I'm an E5. 
And he's like, lights on. And I didn't know at the time. And I look, and he throws me a cold Budweiser. And he's like, pass the word, lights on. Rule of thumb was, you could have two beers while you were cleaning weapons. He didn't care about the politics of anything. We'd show up at Batang, you know, everybody's sounding off with company things. Our company, he'd go, company, tinch, hunt. We'd snap to attention, not say anything. Because we're quiet professionals. We will show what we do in being better than everyone at everything. And we were. The man, you can see the culture of somebody spreading excellence. That man well, was, I mean, look at the statistics of our deployment. Oh, yeah, we got... Compared to all the other companies, how many did they lose? We got credited. They said if they wouldn't have changed the stuff, we won the battle, battle for northern Iraq. And what we went and did in Rawa, we stopped suicide bombings, because they were funneling them in from Syria, but, and other shit I can't talk about, but... Vehicle-borne suicide attacks dropped 90% after we were there for a week. Because they were, the shit they were doing. Yeah, that man. Uh, well, we hit the financing pretty hard. Yeah, we got to gotta find out what grenades do to Mercedes. <laughs> yeah, we, we <laughs> you and I blew a lot of stuff up. <laughs> Made the holy hand grenade of Antioch. That's a funny story. We lost our mind a little bit during <clears> that <throat> deployment. That was like Mad Max. That. That's when you're getting to your roots and really being efficient. Uh, Talk on that more. Explain well, that. Am, am, this is just me personally, but when you send me to war, you're sending me to war. I don't need rules. I don't need any other bullshit. Point me in the right direction and cut me loose. And that's kind of the mentality I had when I went there. I wasn't there to make friends. I wasn't there to hand out candy or be nice or anything else. So, you know, I started creating a weapons stockpile. You know, I didn't particularly like my M4. It's kind of hunk of shit when you get all dirty and grimy, so I carried an M14. Well, I typically carried no less than two rifles, which people thought I was crazy, because I always had my M14 and my M4, where I, uh, I found a shotgun on which some... I, which I got handed off to me in recon when I went back, which was crazy. I, I found this scythe tool, and I used that to saw the barrel off of this shotgun. And I stuffed it in my belt, and I carried a tomahawk, and I carried a scythe. This guy was the Jack Sparrow of northern Iraq. It was ridiculous. But I'll tell you, when you kick down that door and walked in with that shit, what did they do? They hit the ground. They didn't want any part of it, especially when you pull out a sawed-off shotgun. They're like, what the fuck? You know, and bladed weapons were particularly menacing to these people. They didn't care about bullets or anything else, but, you know, they think they're going to be hacked to pieces. And they, and they take a whole different approach to shit. Well, it was... They got way more respect for it. Yeah. Well, anybody does. I mean, I... I would, it. would it be fair to say that when you're in that mode, you feel more natural or more connected to, like, the root of who you are? Like your biology? Yeah, and that's the scary part. I am way more comfortable in war than I am here in the States. Well, we've talked about that a lot. I, I really have a hard time being around people, and then Will can attest to this. When we were there, I was making our situation as, as good as we could. Oh, yeah, him and I... I was making ovens and stoves and... Him and I... <clears throat> I don't know if I told this story. Remember SC6? You and I built that uh, fireplace? Yeah. <clears throat> we were at a... Uh, and I want to hear your take on this after, because... So, this is a funny story, and everybody's going to get a kick out of it, probably. So, we were... There was a four-way intersection... 
The laugh light is on, by the way. Yeah. There, <laughs> well, no, this is legitimately funny. So there was a there was a four way. It better be now, right? right? It got heavy. I know. Um, <laughs> so there was a four way intersection that it got blown up. A police station got blown up by a car bomb in this really bad area of Missoula, and we had a strong point called SE Six. It was four safe houses on a four-way intersection. And basically there was a squad of Peshmerga, which are Kurdish commandos for the people listening, and us at each of the buildings on this four-way intersection. Initially when we went out, the rotation in the company was, we need you to hold this strong point and do patrols out of it a few times a day, but it's so hot, you're not gonna be able to patrol much, but we need you to hold it and you'll be there for 24 hours. So when we came in, the Peshmerga owned they were living in the downstairs of this building with beds and some other stuff. Well, the upstairs, it was just like, you know how the roofs are, we'll walk out and there may be a room. We were staying in the room, but it was just a bunch of trash mounded up to the ceiling. I'm talking shoes, kids' clothes, all kinds of random stuff on a concrete floor. Now, for people who don't know, northern Iraq still gets cold, oh, it, like snow and snowed. <laughs> yeah. So we were there for 24 hours, and literally at SE6... We got attacked about every hour on the hour. <laughs> Us and the Peshmerga, we had we had two of their guys on the roof, two of our guys on the roof on these four buildings. And as soon as we get attacked, we'd run up, we'd counterattack, and then we'd kick out a patrol, whatever. Anyway, the first day our relief was supposed to come, so we didn't bring much. We did we had an assault pack with like some wet weather gear and we did well like twenty four hours we'd suck it up. Well, our sister platoon, who was supposed to come relieve us, got attacked on the way there, and Stryker got blown up and burnt to the ground. Our, yeah. My former, 100% my former squad leader, platoon star, all of them got evac'd. Like, literally, there's a picture of the gunner flipping the r- remote weapon station, free gunning, driving the enemy back with flames coming out under him on a 50 cal, manually free gunning. Anyway, our relief wasn't coming. You're there for at least another two days. It's snowing in Missoula now, and we're on concrete with no cold weather stuff. So we took that big, like, triangular ducting, industrial ducting. There was a piece of it. Him and I wire-tied this thing to the window. We To make a flue. We took a trash can with Leatherman's cut a steel trash can out, fabricated a homemade fireplace, and we were burning the trash to stay warm. We didn't want trash, so some of our guys had, like, laptops and the striker, and we literally were trading the Peshmerga, letting them watch porn... And they went down to the local market and were robbing people for chickens Chickens. and rice and fed us. So at about two days into this, and we got another day left, I haven't shit. And for anybody who hasn't, who's been in cold weather and your body's holding on to excess waste, you get colder. And the engineers... Well, you can't put, shit while you're asleep either, so you had to go out. Right, well... Beyond the pe- protection the to shit. in Iraqi houses at the time, their bathrooms were one-room concrete with a hole they would shit in in the floor and then basically just water plumbed in from roof cisterns for showers. The Peshmerga were shitting this hole, and it was nasty. Well, the engineers at the middle of this intersection had put one of those plywood buildings with the like the oh, shitters. I'm familiar. Well, yeah. they only had the Jersey Bears, and we got attacked every hour on the hour, and him and I were on a roof. He has that M14, and he's laying there, and I'm like, dude, I've got to go so bad. I said, I'm going to that shitter as soon as this attack's over. I know I got an hour, and he's like, are you sure? <laughs> and so I say yes. So he tells our guys, 
out in the middle All of right. the open. And I'm like, I gotta go. So, fight's been over for about five minutes. I go down to the courtyard. I'm on the gate. Last thing I see, he's on the roof. We got a two saws up. He's like, you going? I'm like, yeah. So I run into this shitter, shut the door, and when you let it go when you're freezing, your body instantly, you get that rush of warmth, whatever. And I'm like literally shitting in a five-gallon bucket. As soon as I do, they have mortar rounds bracketed on this intersection. They mortar attack the intersection I'm shitting in. I drop my head down between my legs. Shrapnel rips through the top of this thing over my head. I grab my pants, sprint back to the courtyard. I baseball slide into the courtyard. At this point, he's moved down to the wall. He's up over the wall throwing rounds down. I lean out the courtyard door shoot rounds down the street at these guys and I duck in and he fires around looks at me he goes are you good I said yeah and then he shoots another round looks at me and goes did you wipe and I'm like nope (laughs) (laughs) almost died kissing my own ass taking a shit I'll tell you the only thing when I looked over the only thing I saw was Sam coming out of that shitter dude with his pants just above his fucking knees, dude. Ripping him Pulling up my as he's pants down. Up, holding the rifle, and then sprinting with rounds, over. hitting right behind him. And then me. I didn't see him again until he came up. And it's like, you good? It's like, I knew he didn't fucking wipe, dude. He's <laughs> like, you wipe? <laughs> Bam! Oh. No! <laughs> After that, guess what? The next time we were there, I shit with the Peshmerga. I didn't care. Because <laughs> we still got attacked every hour on the hour. Oh, my God. It's the little things, man. <laughs> Tell them about you and I making cookies at the flower factory. Oh, that was pretty badass. I mean, it was such a bad fucking idea to put a fighting position in a flower Our factory. Our platoon sergeant yelled at us for talking shit about that. Oh, my God. But, yeah, anyways, they put us on a position, and uh, we're sitting with a 50 cal, and all we have is these bags of fucking flour. Instead of sandbags. Yeah. 50-pound bags of flour. It was a flower factory that we were strong-pointing a different safe house. Whole platoon strong pointing a flower factory. Well, they made the positions out as flour. For anybody who doesn't know, flour, when it gets kicked into the air, acts as an accelerant, which can make flame spreading worse. (laughs) So him and I are bitching. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, shit can explode. But yeah, we're sitting bored one time, and we found this piece of steel, and they have these hot pipes running through this building. We set it on that shit, and then we had... I don't know. We had a care MREs. package. No, it was the MREs. The well, we had an MRE, but that's where we got the sugar. But we had this care package that we'd carry around. M&Ms. And we found these, uh, like those uh, Quaker Oat instant yeah. oatmeal. And M&Ms. And we mixed that shit in with the M&Ms and mixed it in with the flour. We cut open our fighting position sandbag. And got this, yeah. We're sitting the there behind out. a 50 cal taking turns on a hot plate and we were making cookies for the platoon out of our fighting position. That's when, like, so the, that's when the colonel or somebody showed up and be like, what you doing? You want a cookie? Yeah, well, <laughs> like, like, the game shows up and he's like, what a cookie? And this time, this guy has a Doc Holiday mustache way outside regs. The brigade commander's oh, like, that's man. a pretty epic, uh, that's a pretty epic, uh, mustache you got there, Sergeant. He says, uh, I'm gonna need you to shave that. He looks straight dead in the eyes. He's like, yeah, that ain't happening, sir. To the brigade commander. And E5, he's like, yep, nope. And just went right back to it, and he eats a cookie. I'm like, next to trying not to laugh. He's told the full-bird colonel, yeah, no, sorry, guy. (laughs) Yeah, I was not, I mean... Well, I'll neither one you. of us cared. We were stop-lost. Our whole job, we said, look... I really feel for my command. I really do, because a lot of it, they... I mean, what were they going to do with my shit attitude? It's like, what are you going to do, fucking fire me? I mean, I was there for one purpose, 
and one purpose only, and I was I thought I was really good at it. Yeah, we were just bringing like, the guys home. That's all we cared about. Right. I didn't care what I had. We to took do. the we took the welfare of the platoon series to the point. I was supposed to go to the board. The platoon sergeant pulled me aside. Like I said, I was a senior team leader in the company. He pulled me aside. You were there. Yeah. About two months before, and he said, "Look, you think you're ready for a squad?" I'm like, "I'm running this one." Yeah. And uh, he goes, "If I send you to the board, you're going to leave the platoon and maybe the company." And he was fine with us until we deployed, because then he had been a ranger instructor, but he had never been in combat. And then we went to combat. And I started checking him, an E5 checking an E7. And when the first sergeant's coming to an E5, asking questions, it's offending that E7. Yeah. And uh, so they, I got denied to the board the whole time. I turned it down once, and then they were like, look, because I was stop lost, and I'm like, look, all I care about is bringing this platoon home alive. Two E5s taking it personally. There were actually four of us. Yeah. They called us the Four Horsemen, but yeah. that squad got broken up about halfway through the deployment. You know, I actually got that tattoo. The Four Horsemen? Yeah. yeah. That's the one thing that is so interesting. So Expect no, well, what was our saying? Uh, seek no glory, expect no reward. Yep. That because our, that was our saying. We didn't care. All we cared about was bringing everybody home. Yeah. And that, the fight. That That's it. all we cared about. Yeah. It's a good one. I mean, we had our days, but... You know, I, w I wouldn't change it for the world, you know. You learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about the world. It's you know, the you, real world. And you, yeah, and you really appreciate the little things in life after experiences like that. I mean, especially in America, it's hard to come home and seeing what other people actually live with and then see what we have and, and see people whine and complain and create problems that aren't there. And it's like, holy shit, I just watched these Kurds get forced out of their homeland, pushed into the most ungodly terrain on the planet. That you, no water, you can't grow anything. There's not a single plant, or let alone a rock, that hasn't been beat to dust by artillery or war or salted at some point in the world. And these motherfuckers just appreciate the shit out of anything. Little kids out there playing. Yeah, the Kurds are something else, man. They're a hard people. We had a lot of respect for them. And they fought. Nobody fought harder. Nobody bled more. And not a single complaint ever. Peshmerga commander said, I had a dude push like, the, the guy in charge of the Peshmerga squad. We were, first gun, second gun fight we got in, he was next to me, and I get shoved. And I fall down, and I'm like, what the fuck? And he just, and he literally is like, they're mag dumping. They would oh, death yeah. blossom everything. Every hour when it happened, they're like, we're shooting. Every, they were shooting at little kids. They're like, Alibaba, don't care. They're like, they're not Kurdish. Well, that's how they were treated. They were exterminated for how long? They were, but he shoved me to the ground. I'm yeah. like, what the hell? And then some rounds came in, and he goes, brother. Yeah. Their commander told them, for every 20 of us that die, or for every, every one of us that die, 20 of them be better 20. die. And he took that seriously. Yeah. They would protect us. As yeah, much as you can protect somebody. They, they, you know, those guys those guys love this. Wow. And that's what hit me the heart. I mean, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here for a second. By all means, sidebar. This go. whole fucking thing with us pulling out of Afghanistan leaving and Iraq, leaving everything that we did behind chaps my fucking ass to no end. And the reason for it, fuck the money, fuck the equipment, but all those guys that we fought, lived, and bled with, got wiped the fuck out the minute we left. Yep. 
There were still people there trying to live their lives yeah. and make it better. Doing their best. They were the only ones making a difference. Right. Well, yeah, you know, and I think that's one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough or maybe doesn't even get talked about. It doesn't about. get talked about you at know, all. They're the like, sacri- $80 billion dollars yeah. is left behind. And people are like, oh, my God, look the, at all the that sacrifice, money. You know, I look back at my time in Iraq, and, and, and my time in Iraq doesn't compare anything to the, like what you it guys have does. done. It all does. I mean, we're, but, all, we're all in this together, and there is no better or worse. Right. With, with mil- we're all we're all military brothers because right. I did something doesn't make me any cooler or anything else than anybody else. Well, it's all personal experience. You know, the one thing like, that I took home with me is so I had an interpreter that served with me in Iraq, and his name was Ali, and I got really close to Ali. I would consider Ali a brother, especially in my time there. But you know, for me, that was a very short period of time, right? right? But what people don't realize is like you know, I rotate home. Yeah, I come they, home, I leave that. That interpreter doesn't leave. Right. So I stay in contact with him. Thankfully, social media, right? So I stay in contact with him over the years, and so here he is now. We're talking three, four years later. I think it's two thousand nine, two thousand ten time frame, and he's now he gets moved. They, he yes, he gets forced out of Iraq because the situation had got to the point with his family that essentially they were just going to kill his family if he stayed. Right. So he leaves Iraq and he goes to Jordan, and all he wants to do is come to the United States, mm-hmm. and he f- takes two years. To fight to get to the United States, I'm like this guy has been fighting alongside American forces for a decade, continuously. He never gets to go home. He lives there. He fights there, and we're not going to give him entry. Then finally, he somehow gets to the United States. I think some other other veterans that were connected to him over the years that had some influence got him some letters or whatever. So again, what does he do? He joins the army. Goes back over, and now is serving as a U.S. soldier. And I'm like, why? Man. You've already been a U.S. soldier. Why weren't you recognized for that? Why does that guy have to put in 20 years? Remember fairs? That yeah. guy should have been oh, brought yeah. in. What's from there? You I know, mean, if I, that was the end right. goal for him, he should have been enlisted there. Right. He should have been given rank. He should have been given time in service. He should have been treated like a a citizen because he earned that right. 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 And, well, and, and, and he's than, one yeah. of. Thousands. Well, there's thousands. The, there's it's the not right. And I, and it's I, not I, right. No. I see, and I see both sides of it. And this is what I. So when I was in recon, after so a little bit of that with us, uh, when we came back, our unit reflagged, and the whole unit got sent to Germany together. Other than the guys who, e- yeah, okay. other than the guys who ETS or whatever. Well, at the time, I was the platoon sergeant in the same platoon. He's a squad. Sam's a squad leader, and we get to Germany. He had a lot of personal life stuff happen that was bad then, but we get to Germany. My first day when the regular chain of command shows up, they're like, yeah, the battalion commander says you're going to recon. And then we were supposed to be there for two years. Well, we'd been there like two months, and they go, yeah, the surge is happening. We're here. We just became theater QRF. We're on the pass chart. Ten months later... We're back in Baghdad. Well, because of his personal stuff, he was trying to get his kids squared away. He had a lot of... I'm not getting into all this stuff, but basically he got separated under a... What? It was a... a Hardship. Yeah, it's called something, but basically he was a sole parent with four children. He was trying to get it squared away, and he he wanted to deploy with his squad, and I knew all that guy. At that time, that was Eagle Company, because it got rebranded, whatever. I'm in Scouts. The last time him and I saw each other for years... I'm literally leaving housing. He had stayed with me the night before we had drank together. 
We gave each other a hug. He gets on a bus to go back home and take care of his kids. I got I got on a bus, flew on a plane, and did 18 months in Iraq with recon. That's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was going home. And I really struggled with it. Yeah, especially after Milo died. Yeah, that's... Because he was one of our guys. That killed, that killed me inside. And I, and I always, well, I always second-guess myself <clears throat> before that because... You know, you always wonder the what ifs. Is what if I was there? What if I was his leader? Would it have turned out different? You know, and maybe, maybe not. But both of those guys, and that's the hard thing, is both of those guys that were involved with that were my guys, and I love them. I love them to death. And I couldn't trade one for the other. Right. You know, and I, and I, I've struggled with it, but I need to really reach out to that other guy and you know, let him know that because I, I really. Maybe he didn't handle that situation. We went in. Us. We went in, and we were out in the sector when we got that call. Oh, and I was hoping it wasn't tough. wasn't a couple other guys. He's a really good kid. As a matter of fact, when I was in Hawaii, I had him from basic training. It's I know, and I was his potential. I bumped into his cousin because he was a. Uh, they were Guamanian, and they had big families. A lot of their family joined the military. Well, I was running a breaching range when I was stationed in Hawaii as a platoon sergeant, and an E6 comes up, Milo. And uh, I said, hey, man, you have any other family in the military? And this big, stocky, massive Guamanian guy, he's like, yeah, Sarge, I got family in the, in the military. I said, okay, did you have a family member who died in Baghdad back in 2007? And he goes, yeah, my cousin. And I said, yeah, I was his platoon. I said, Avalelo Milo? And he said, yeah. I said, yeah, I was his platoon sergeant when he came in the Army, and I was actually... In recon, I said that was my old platoon, and we were out in the sector. And we helped secure his body and get it out after it happened. And he was like, "Oh!" And then I asked him, like, "Hey, the family, blah blah blah, asked a bunch of stuff. They did a big thing for him back home, and I sent you the memorial thing yeah. for him. Uh, it was a bad, bad area of South Baghdad. Matter of fact, yeah, you were gonna give me his I had a price tag or bracelet yeah, but, or yeah, something but I until you it. ran into him and as like good call. Guy. Yeah, I gave him his uh, bracelet I had made that I wore. Um, my scout platoon, it was so bad with, it was, during the surge, it was weird because you had Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then you had Jaish al-Mahdi which was the Mahdi militia from, you know, um, Mohammed al-Sadr and they ran the police in southern Iraq and it's weird because we protect, we had to do PSD, the platoon would usually go split ops and recon and half of us would protect one portion of the attack but then at night we were doing time sensitive targets with a bunch of assets I can't talk about, and our fox company in the unit blew a door in, and uh, me and all the uh, leadership and recon from doing close protection for the colonel, we all have hundred thousand dollar prices on our head. Yeah, I had and then been... I found out I was on the ISIS kill list, so <laughs> I take that shit pretty seriously because they yeah. they had my picture and know who I am. Well, I mean, you still got to worry about that nowadays because you know as yeah, well they, as I do, they have patience. Jihad's a thing. Yeah. They'll wait. They'll wait fifty years for you. They'll live right next to you and be your best friend until it's time. Yeah, dude. Well, and then when I came back, and it's then like, when I finally went core. to Hawaii, him and I were on social media, and I hadn't seen him, and then he came out and visited me there, uh, and we hung out for a while, and then I've been out to see Sam a few times and stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. we've been through some shit together for sure. 
I think what you just mentioned a second ago, that cultural significance. You know, we've talked about that on the podcast a few times, about how cultural significance plays such a difference in not just socioeconomic or sociopolitical or social government, but in this case, all the way down to social behavior differences, oh, yeah, right? And I think that sometimes when we sit here in America, we're so geographically isolated from the world, like you talked about with travel, right? Right. We don't get to experience the world. So people who haven't actually traveled out of the United States, it's really hard to consider someone educated when you don't have any real-world experience. And what you read isn't real-world experience. Right. And so when we tell people things like that, when you say something like that to someone, the, the typical isolated American reaction is they don't conceive it because it's abstract. We don't have anything like that in our culture. So they hear you say it, but it doesn't land. It's like it me saying click. it's like me saying I have three million dollars over here. You right. may understand that, but you, but don't. you don't. You don't really get that, right? right? You can you, understand it, but you don't comprehend it. It's just it. abstract. So well, once you get to an abstract concept, you know, if I said three million versus three trillion that doesn't matter anymore, right? Right, right. And so it's when, like explaining to a kindergartner. Yeah, so these conversations <laughs> don't land disturbed. with people because the concept is too abstract. And they need to really understand that, no, there are cultures in the world, like we talked about, that are living in conditions that we cannot oh, express, it's, that, it's have the, that have the ability, like you said, they will be your friend. And I think that's the thing that gets misconstrued, and I'd like to talk about that because, you know, we live in a world where... Um, <clears throat> stereotypes and racism and and all of these things biased and and, and whatever um, prejudice toward whatever groups of people can be a thing but this is a one that I've always struggled with because that's the thing you know if I meet someone in their Arabic or their Muslim I don't want to prejudge them right but there's also an inability to trust because I know that that person that could be by your side that could be your best friend that maybe did save your life will try to kill you right. when you're not ready. There's right. And so it's it's like you don't want to prejudge anyone, but you don't but know you what you're dealing to. with. So and that is part of that culture. We had an interpreter who oh, yeah. in recon. Yep. Well this is in recon. Well what about in Missoula when had, our when our Terp would leave for the weekend and we would get mortared an hour later. Yeah we had and also we had some yeah, he's, he's what, calling in your position. What about yeah, our, yeah what about exactly. Shell Hall where one of our workers strapped on a suicide vest yeah, we, in blue up we moved out 40 of, the, of our fucking guys. The Missoula Chow mm-hmm. when it got bombed, we literally moved out the night before that because they moved us to a different Ford operating base. Um, it was still our guys, though. And we came off a raid that night. Would you like another one, sir? Sure. Uh, Let's right. do it. Some of that Screaming Eagle? Oh, I guess. Yeah, All that last right. one fucked me up pretty bad. Um, I'm not going to lie. And I'm running on. Well, yeah. we had... Uh, the thing people don't... It's compliments of the 101st, son. Yeah, <laughs> nice. The people that think... A lot of things people I'll don't tell you the background is... The interpreters, you got to understand what where they got caught up a lot. The reason there were a lot, a lot of them were suicide bomber stuff. A lot of them were well intended, intended, but you have to understand their families were still living in and around. And a lot of times, the reason these guys would get compromised is because all of a sudden their families would get captured, yeah. held, they'd behead a member of the family or something, mm-hmm. and then they basically strap this guy with a vest and they're like, "We're going to kill your kids now unless Everybody. you do this." So. That's yep. what you do. They have no trip. That's actually how when we shut down stuff in northern Iraq, why it was so successful, because they were funneling the guys in, keeping them moving with their families captured, and we ended up shutting down the their main avenue in, basically. Well, yeah, and that's what I try to tell people. That was one of the biggest conflicts that I had when I went to Iraq, was 
really learning a different perspective with what government is for the people. So, you know, when we went in, I didn't realize that one of the big culture shock things for me when I got to Baghdad was I didn't realize that they had freedom of religion. So when we got out to the college and places like that, when we started seeing people, girls wearing jeans and T-shirts and very Western-style dress, I wasn't expecting that. And then when we talked to the interpreters, you realize that, like, no, Saddam preached that. And how he kept that was, like, you know, if a Christian family was to move in a Shiite street, and the Shiite people would come down and they would, you know, murder the family or whatever. What he'd do, he'd send the Republican Guard in. They'd take all the right. leaders. He, they'd hang them from the light post. And then guess what? Yep. Christian families could now live right. on the street. And that was the moment that I realized that, like, one, he, our media he was, was a method to, yeah. yeah, they he, want, he was a method to the madness. Yeah, he was. That, but harsh. you know, but when you see our tactics, when yeah. we tried to govern, oh, well, what are we going to do in there? And this is the problem. Yeah. You take a people where their form of communication is. You beheaded this person in front of me, so I'm probably not going to do that. And then we say, if you do that, we're going to give you a fine. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We're not even on the same planet. You you can't govern those people that way. You can't bring the Walmart McDonald's method of things to the whole world. you got to understand, the people culturally... You can't even do it in the United States, let alone the fucking world. I mean, shit. Look at us here. Why don't we focus on our own fucking problems? Because, I oh, mean, right. our neighborhoods are going to shit real quick and in a hurry, and we're so concerned about how to change other people's cultures. Why, you know, if this is the way they want to live and the do things and the religion they want to live, teach their own. They well, because we're, let them do it. Because we're isolated. And I, I really think, you know, I, Americans get a bad rap. And, and for this may be the first time I'm ever going to defend America on the podcast. We're just a different... Oh, I but, love America. But we, we, get, we get a bad... We earned our oh, shit. Oh, I do too. But we get a bad rap, and I think it comes from our isolation. Right? Yeah. We are so geographically isolated that we don't really have the ability to travel to different cultures. And when I did the exchange student program a few years ago, and uh, our exchange daughter that came in was from Norway. And that was really the first moment that I realized that... I wonder you're the, such a big fan. Well, yeah, and I am. I'm very connected, but that's when I first got... So at that time, that was when I was... Uh, I just started my doctorate program. So economic research was already something that I was big into, and learning about the country. It, it has allowed me more access to the policies of the country from a life standpoint right. than what I would get from just studying it. But my you, fascination... Right, but my fascination with it is only from the study of that. I, if it, it wasn't necessarily, it's not just because they're from Norway. No, 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 I get yeah. it. Yeah. But um, that's when I realized like, we don't have the ability to experience the world like other cultures do. Right. And what that does is that really allows people who live here to kind of view ourselves as the center of the world. And we only view things from that viewpoint, and we don't see it from outside. And so for the rest of the world, they look at it, it looks like arrogance. It looks like a lot of things that it's not. It's really just ignorance. We just don't know. Right. We well, only know what we're told or, and what or, we have access right. to. Well, well, or don't want to believe it when we do hear it. I well, mean, a lot but of that's proper. Like but to they, be yeah, but that's probably, no, that we're taught to be. Well, right. I mean, that's 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 a socio-political thing. I mean, that's nothing more than a narrative, well, right? Well, we've got that that's luxury. That's a narrative for a cultural organization. We have that luxury because unlike a lot of places in the world is they see it firsthand. Yeah, you can't hide don't. your shit. Right. right. Well, and you've got to realize. We listen to media and watch the other stuff. It's always someone else's take on whatever they want to preach. 
So unless mm-hmm. you see it for yourself, oh. it's, it's really wasn't, hard to believe. Hey, for you guys, wasn't the biggest eye-opening thing ever when the first time you got deployed overseas and oh. you grabbed an overseas newspaper? And seeing what they're writing? Oh, oh my, my goodness. That, could you, you know the biggest thing for me? Here I am. I'm Kuwait, 2000. We haven't been in an active military engagement at all. And the first time I read European Times, all I'm reading is about airstrikes that we are conducting all over the world that apparently everyone knows about but, but us. us. Right. But us. And I'm like, holy shit, we're bombing people like all the time. Right. No wonder everybody fucking hates us. <laughs> well, and, and you, so even you talk about cultures and geography for context. So when we were in Europe, him and I, even going in different geographical areas of Germany, because we were in Bavaria where we were stationed, and they have their own culture, obviously, but you go to a different part, different culture. Now you take that small geographic area and extrapolate that across the United States. Now we have some nationality blending, but the cultures in Mississippi are very different than the cultures in, in Seattle. The, our country, how many Europe's could you fit in the United States? Like, the only thing we have Doesn't the whole of Europe fit in like Utah? No, it, it <laughs> is. It's like, it's it is like almost the size of Texas, though. Right. No, I think, I think point, it is. Though. It's like barely larger than Texas. It's ridiculous. I mean, when compared I to the United States, States, that's not well, all that big. Well, when we had, I have friends that live in uh, Britain, and the first time that uh, they came to the United States, I didn't really understand. They were they had drove like nine and a half hours to get where, and when they got here, they were just freaking out because that is the longest car ride they'd ever been in their life. Yeah. They're like, you don't understand. You could drive from the furthest point in England to the the southernmost point and it's like yeah, i think they said i don't don't quote me but it was only like six or seven hours well you can back and i'm like Europe. shit that we that's like a drive to day trip. yeah that's yeah. a day trip right. we're like, going right. to bass pro in springfield well, yeah exactly <laughs> like shit man it, the longest you know i went on the trains all over germany and the longest one was like four hours yeah. across well, the whole fucking so, country and you're like yeah well, i was living in farmington at the time i can drive across and utah in four hours they had so. they had a work assignment in festus and yeah. it was a 45 minute drive so i thought no big deal right you 40 minute drive back and forth to festus and they were so mad they were like in England they would have never even have considered asking you like that would have been right. so far out of the question if you have to drive more than like 20 minutes it would have been like fuck you Right. Like, they couldn't conceptualize. They have to drive 40 minutes Dude. each way. What do you mean you can't walk? What do you mean? Like, what? What, right. what is this? It, that was... But well, that is for, as an American... But they're way better established than we are, especially for mass transit. Well, there's a train look, or bus well, station. It all comes down yeah. to geography. We're right. so big. Yeah. And we are so dispersed. And that's why I mean The average commuting time for Americans is, what, well, 50 minutes? That's why I maintain yeah. federalism would work in the city, okay. But it in, could its be two current, hours in its current model, we're literally miles. so many countries. That's why I think where we're at now. Yeah. We're so many different countries. Like, look, what works there... It's not necessarily going to ...isn't be necessarily what works here. So let's not do a one-size-fits-all. And Joe Rogan's talked about it a couple times on hip-hop. He's like, it's crazy. You know, and... Especially, like, you think about in Bavaria, like, guys literally were going to a different country every weekend right mm-hmm. over there. It'd be yeah. like, like I said, it'd be like you and I saying, hey, let's go over to Bass Pro and check it out. But now they're in the Czech Republic. Yeah, or, for real. Hey, now they're in Italy. Mm-hmm. Or now, I have one of my guys, He, I ended up sending him to West Point, and uh, now he works for, I think, J.P. Moore. He's one of the big guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, or he was out of D.C. But anyway, David Rader, if you ever listen, shout out, man. Um... He was one of our guys, but he literally, he was all about traveling, and that kid, 
every weekend he was in a different country, and he's like, yeah, man, it's just like going here. Guys would jump on a train, grab a beer, take a nap, wake up, and then they were experiencing this completely different culture. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you think about that, right? If you have the ability to not just experience that completely, you know, people think about that. I'll bring up a better example. Um, We look at people that live in Europe and we make these assumptions because most people that live in Europe speak two or three languages. And we think, oh, my God, you know, look, they're so much smarter than Americans, right? right? You hear statements like that. No, they're not any smarter. Yeah, because they live in places where there are two or three predominant languages. There are different cultures, and they're exposed to it on a day-to-day basis from the time that they're little, and it becomes part of their dialect, right? It becomes part of their speech. So we don't have access. Where where are you going to live here? We have a handful of small pockets in a few cities. Yeah, (laughs) Texas or Arizona, you'll be speaking Spanish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but, you know, but again, cultural isolation. We don't view that as bilingual here, do we? We don't really give anybody credit for that. It's only bilingual if you know other foreign languages, because somehow that's been idolized for us. Right. It's it's a thing where you got to realize that. And this is the same thing I told guys in Iraq. And it was like when him and I were there together, I mean, obviously we're young and you mature and thoughts evolve and change and whatever. But, you know, when you're there and you're just doing your job and you're you're conditioned to view people as something else. And then over time you look back at it and you're just like, hey, man, these are... 99% 99% of those people were they weren't bad guys right. they were just people trying to live their lives in a really bad situation and, and, then, and I look into that and look back and yeah, 20 years later I don't blame a single one because if I put myself in their shoes at this point in time us it's like I would have done the same thing too a lot but of the people then, that got roped into it and did it I didn't yeah. think about that I just did it that's what my country asked me to do that's what I'm going to do that's why I joke I said we were stormtroopers I joke around all the time but I'm like it's only a little bit funny because well it wasn't until a lot of years later it's like where's these WMDs where's this shit well Saddam was captured Mm -hmm. they said that was the end of the war and it didn't end for me it was when I sat back Mm -hmm. and like you promised this was going to be the end of it once we hit this and we did it all right, now here here's the line. Once we do this, that's the end of the war, and we did it. And they moved that line and line until they flat out says we don't know. Well, and you can't do nation like, culturally what the fuck? if you look at it. And that if was, you don't know, then what was the purpose of the war? That was the point I was getting to about the McDonald's or Walmart approach. We wanted to hey, we're going to bring these things capitalistically or whatever to this country right. without acknowledging like they have that saying. Uh, it's something like me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, me and my, like, against my family, me and my family against my tribe, me and my tribe against... They have a completely different outlook on loyalty and all these other things where it's like, it doesn't matter. You can have, you can want to have free and fair elections, but look what happened. The guy we put in place, mm-hmm. then you see political parties right. aligning with with religious sex and it's like that's what they do that's who they are well and I think that you know that comes back to what I was talking about on uh, the podcast when we were getting into socioeconomic structures right people don't realize that there's three structures to any society there's the governmental structure the political structure the economic structure right and so those are the three frameworks that make up and then from there those frameworks have to be matched to a social cultural structure right okay that socio-cultural structure is the makeup that determines which one of those types of governments types of uh, of economic systems types of governmental systems are going to be necessary to manage those people 
So there is not a one size fits all. Right. It's not possible. And and to say that there is is ignorance. Well, you can see the folly in the previous wars, especially like with the Vietnam and Korea, where they the America put in their representative, and they just got assassinated, and the countries went back to doing what they did well, before not, we were. Ever it's really involved. no different than Rome, which is why I draw that parallel all the time. So well, oh my God, Germania, it's such a great parallel. Right. Yeah, it's it's the, the, the Greek thing. and Roman yeah. is is I mean, it's so close. In a, it's an empire. I, we just don't learn. It's you an know, em, it's an empire, and it's it's imperialism literally spreading but if you look at it it never lasts historically mm-hmm. it always kind of breaks down and devolves the same way until another vacuum is filled and then that process sort of starts really great white paper written was written by a guy called Sir John Globe called Fate of Empires and he and there have been books that people put out since called the fourth turning and some other stuff but they basically lay out here's the markers of the growth and decline of an empire and it's based on certain socioeconomic things cultural things that happen right. and if you look at like where we are the parallels between us and rome and mm-hmm. right into the fall and before yeah. are uncanny well the number one and, and for the audience the number one break point for that is income disparity okay yeah. and so when income and political disparity match that is where the problem begins. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened in Rome. Too the Rome Senate was comprised originally of the people, right? right? So they were plebeians. They were farmers. They were business regular owners. People. The regular people. And the then, locals. And then it became businesses. Right. And bankers and merchants. Yeah. And then it had switched over, right? And then it became the aristocrats and the well-off people in the society, right? When that transition happened, that was the beginning of the fall. And then... When it became, you could only now be rich if you to, to be political, right. right? And that's exactly, now we have mirrored that perfectly right. in this country well, if, over the last 30 years. If you look at our civil servants right now, especially, I mean, I'm going to point out Nancy Pelosi just because she's the very easiest. When you're a civil servant making $100,000 a year and you leave office with hundreds of millions, how do you acquire such vast wealth over being a civil servant? Well, and it's and the same way with the Rome. When you became a senator, that's was when your fortunes were. Well, yeah, and we've made. got to we've got to a point now, you know. And, and the real answer is, you know, people ask me, "How do you fix politics in this country? How do you fix the country?" Term limits. And well, the real answer, not just term limits. The real answer is, you got to change the positions and the people in the positions, right? They need to go back to being regular people. Right, it needs to be people that are are reachable. Right, you take somebody like myself, and I and that's some. I so I give, I give an entire um, lecture at college about income disparity. Right, so some of these numbers are a little bit old because I haven't updated my numbers because it doesn't really matter. The problem is only getting worse. The premise is the same. The premise is the same. You go back like two thousand eight, two thousand nine time frame. I think where I got most of these numbers from. Um, if you made under a hundred and ten thousand dollars a year as a family, you were in the bottom ninety percent of Americans. It means ninety percent of the people in America at that time frame made under a hundred and ten thousand dollars a year combined. That's a two-income family. So if you made more than a hundred and ten thousand dollars, you're in the top ten percent. Right now, if we look at those numbers and we think that they're gradual, you would be mistaken. Because the gap between the top 10%, between 9% and 5%, goes from 110000 a year to $2.4 a year. 
Okay, which means that a lot of Americans assume that there is this wealth of people in this country that are making between two hundred and a million dollars a year. And the reality is, the fraction of people that make that money is less than the fraction of the people that are in the top one percent. There is a so the gap. So every you have one hundred and ten thousand a year. Then the next major population point that you arrive is two point four million a year. Well, and then my question, my question about that is though. That making well, how much of that think, is business now, owners? Now that those are though those are economic numbers. Those those numbers are, are solid, but not just business. Those are individual people. I'll talk about business in a second. That'll that'll shock you. But you want to talk about how disconnected society is at that exact same time frame as when um, John McCain was running for president, yeah. and he had an interview which he was asked point blank, what did he consider? Because they were talking about taxing the wealthy. Right. What, what do you consider, consider rich? And he goes, I think anyone who makes more than $5 million a year is rich. Now, that's rich in his mind. Right. But in by the numbers, that is the top 0.3% of people in America. So, But what we got to realize is those politicians are in that, that top 3%. Right. And how they get All that of money. them. So you take somebody like me. Even somebody who is a in the 10 percentile, okay? I'm in the top 10 percent of earners. I can't even afford to run for local government. <laughs> right. Right. I have all the education. I have all the experience. I have every right to read. I have the ability, but I can't afford to do it. I don't make enough money. No, you need donors. Well, well, need donors. And then, <laughs> and then I become a slave special to, to special donors. interest donors. Right. Well, right. when you look at the presidency, it's now, it's a billion dollars. If you don't have a billion dollars, you're not going to even come close to, to winning. Well, and it's, it's that, that's a... And then how many a, people do you have to answer podcasts, to? podcasts, probably. Right, yeah. right. But I'm just saying, it's old, but even local, it's the same shit. Yeah. Well, but to go back to business. Yeah. So, you know, you want to talk taxation and business. So this is an interesting <laughs> statistic, and this is one of the things that makes me mad. Because I talked about businesses the other day about how much earnings they have in comparison to countries, right? right? So when you look at the scope of business in our... Uh, in our country in comparison to the world. We have the largest corporations, the most profitable corporations yeah. in the entire world. When you look at the tax paid, and I think it was 2012, again, I'll get numbers. I'm going to start fact-checking some of this to, to make it more current. But we had like uh, something like $3 trillion of tax revenue collected. Yeah. Out of that $3 trillion of tax revenue, corporate taxes... Corporation taxes paid only attributed to 13.2%. Okay? So the richest corporations in the world only paid 13% of the United States' IRS tax bill. That means that the people, 90% of the people in America that are under $110,000 paid the other 87%. That's where the money came from. Us. Not the richest corporations in the world. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. That isn't tax the rich. That's pay your fucking share. Right. Well, and I. Well, that's why we have I, so many people in absolute poverty that can't afford to. You and, know, and this anything. goes back to the point I was making. Because I don't. My my thoughts. I can see a lot of sides and arguments on all this, and that's why. I enjoy our conversations because it makes me think about some things. Some I still am like, X, I always err on devil's advocate mm -hmm. about because human nature doesn't change. 
and this is why I go back to this, it's power vacuums and power consolidating. Talking about run, making comparisons, what about now? There's nothing new under, or there may be new stuff, but stuff rhymes. Like history right. may not always repeat itself, but it Yeah, this rhymes. has all happened before. So it's power consolidation and then a breakdown because of things and then a leveling and then it's a constant process, whatever. And the interesting thing is, is when you look at the ways to align things, short of a new technology or something, it will continue to repeat itself. Yeah, it's going to, because it, humans don't change. That's why I said human nature right. isn't Human change. nature doesn't change. You know, regardless of what's happening in our environment, regardless of what the environmental changes, we are the same biological animal. We're the same evolved ape for lack of a better term yep. that was 10,000 years ago right. so the same monkey that was just learning fire is the same monkey that's trying to figure out how to use an iPhone right our environment has changed but we are no more capable of dealing with it right well, and which is why everybody's going fucking crazy and the thing is if unless you're ever yeah, going to get we're in uncharted territory that we know of greed or well, I mean it's human nature always being the same uh, but you know it, it's interesting when you see anytime different perspectives are always interesting to listen to you know like having friends in Europe talking to them like you you did your study abroad and, and, and stuff and even when you get service members around the table with the depth of experience and stuff it, it's just interesting to see and you realize elected officials at the end of the day, those are just people too. Can I want to talk about something? Sure. Because I'm interested to hear your guys' perspective on this because I know my own. Have you felt that your travel experience has made it more difficult for you to connect to people that that you find in your local community I, that don't share the same experiences? I have. <clears throat> for a few of my experiences is I've, I've actually come out and you know told a, a very few people of my experiences in war and overseas and they flat out did not believe me they thought I was lying they're like that's not how it is no way that's how, it can't be that way right I'm like yeah and that was I mean that's just where I dropped it that's why I don't bother talking about this to a whole lot of people because it's just going to be wasted breath right. I mean the it, it yeah. takes a special individual to even be open-minded enough to accept th that people can behave in that manner or that we are really that special in the world. Like, we are shielded from so much as Americans and, you know, we're really, really young. We haven't gone through the struggles of these other countries and the people, you know, and I... I almost feel apathetic a little bit. Not really. That's the wrong word. I can't really put the right word on it but because when I went places I assimilated a lot like even in Hawaii culturally I lived in and around a lot of the Filipino like I lived out in the culture uh, even when I was in Georgia I was like one white guy in a 85% black neighborhood and would help out my neighbors and, and whatever and you could see biases and stuff and so like anywhere I've moved and I've literally lived in four corners of the country for periods of time and so, I can have conversations and ex 
it, it, it's 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 uh, acknowledging people's viewpoints based on their perspective. In my view, you acknowledge people's perspective based on their viewpoints, and without saying maybe you're ignorant, because people look at that as a negative. I'm ignorant to a lot of things. Right. That's we not all a, are. That's not a negative word. It's right. just a truism if you don't have knowledge or experience in that potential uh, right. area. Yeah, ignorance isn't a bad word. But a lot of people right. view it that yes. way. Yes. And, and so if people are speaking in ignorance, sometimes I may say, I don't think you know what you're talking about, and here's some stuff, so here's some context about maybe why. Uh, I don't know that it's difficult just because I've bounced around and done stuff, but it's definitely something I can I can see. Uh, um, I don't know that it's hard, though. The biggest thing for me is hard is just with the disparity between first world, third world, and seeing some of that stuff. It's like I said, coming back, like, hey, we don't live in the real world. Like, people don't know, they don't, they can't, they can't begin to grasp that because that disparity is so huge. You can, you can walk down to a gas station and you can get a drink oh, yeah. and you can go to a supermarket. Cheeseburgers at McDonald's. We have 85 restaurants in town. Right. Like, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's still, it's, a it's hardship no, here is I had to wait two hours to I get had to wait, into a restaurant. I waited in the drive, and I'm guilty of it too, and then I'll laugh oh, yeah. when I think about it. It's like, I had to wait in the drive through for 15 minutes to get my food. And it's like, dude, you sit down at a meal in Germany, that's a two-hour experience. Yep. Like, you're at the restaurant. Like, here, my wife and I can go down, grab a craft beer and a meal and an appetizer, like, grab an appetizer, take our meal home, and be out the door in 30 minutes. And it's like, no. Like, yeah, other, not, the cultural differences and just yeah, we're in such acknowledging a those all the time. as different... Maybe not better, but different. Right. And it's keeping that kind of context and keeping that in your mind has helped me. Yeah. Um, but it's there. But I've experienced it, it all over, you know? It's right. Like, so, anyway. Well, I think that was a pretty excellent answer. I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. I'm happy with that. Yeah, I think uh, learning a little bit about cultural diversity and, and opening your mind to other experiences. And, you know, for me, I found that I've adopted a lot of those. There was a lot of things that I found in other cultures that I liked more. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. I decided, you know, well, why can't I do it that way? Sure. You know, and, and so you adopt some of those things, and you, you grow, and it becomes a different way. But, yeah, I'll tell you what, good podcast, guys. Yeah. yeah. I enjoyed that. I learned a lot about the Army. A lot about, it was good having you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. It was very good having you. You're definitely welcome back. You know, you're still awesome. in Utah, right? Yeah, yeah. We're going we're gonna to plan that trip. Oh, yeah, oh, we'll shoot there. We'll go out there and definitely. kill some elk and shoot that. Uh, shoot you others. you have off road vehicle? Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah, all of course, them. right? I have three. All of them. So when we do our Moab trip, what we have four spots out there. Why don't we just bring him That's out? Not far from me. Yeah. yeah, we can shoot another podcast out there in Moab. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah I go out to Moab. Yeah, I've got side by sides, jeeps, uh, square body Chevy, and a, you know even a diesel, a turbo diesel four by four. So. Oh shit! All the play yeah. toys. Yeah. Sweet. I live. That's why I'm a desert rat. That's that's how we grew up with with guns and four wheelers and motorcycles. I like this guy. Yep. Like, that, we this, is my people. this is my people. This is my people. We're gonna keep him around. Yeah. If you didn't kill shit or grow it, you you, you didn't eat much. All right. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you all for joining us at our pub table conversation. Um, make sure if you haven't done so, please subscribe to the podcast. Also, we're eager to hear comments. If you guys have feedback or suggestions for future uh, podcasts, or if you guys just want to add to the conversation. We're happy to carry it on there in the comments section. But we appreciate all you guys. We will be back here next Friday. And for this one...
if I can find this. The stoned apes are out. 